listening to Nightlight. Hello and welcome once again to Nightlight. I do hope that you've been enjoying this podcast and learning as much as I am from the variety of very knowledgeable guests that we're blessed to have as contributors to this show. On the show today, I'm joined by investigative Bible researcher and eschatologist Robert Mandelbaum. And today, we're going to be talking about the Septuagint. Nightlight Insights. Robert, welcome back to Nightlight. I have, of course, heard about the Septuagint, but really know nothing about it. So please start by telling us what is the Septuagint and how does it differ from the King James and other Bible translations? Okay, I'm going to quote from uh, an explanation here. The Septuagint, or it's also referred to as LXX, or Greek Old Testament, is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and certain Apocrypha, which was sponsored according to tradition in the late 3rd century BC by Ptolemy II Philadelphus, the king of Ptolemaic Egypt, who reigned from 283 BC to 246 BC. The Greek translation was originally created for use by the Alexandrian Jews who were fluent in Koine Greek but not in Hebrew. Now Koine Greek is considered the vulgar Greek but not in the sense that it was vulgar but the common Greek. Thus the Septuagint is sometimes called the Apostles Bible and was the one that Jesus and his disciples would have had access to. Wow. It is quoted in the New Testament by writers such as the Apostle Paul and remained the scripture for use by the Apostolic Fathers. And this is from the Researcher's Library of Ancient Texts, Volume 3. Very interesting. So, a question comes up. Have you ever tried to find the word Christ in the Old Testament of your English Bible? Chances are you're really unlikely to find it in most English Bibles, although the Jewish people at the time of Jesus were well aware that God was sending his Christ to bring about salvation. Right. They would have known this from the term Christ, from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. God was sending his Christ not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. This is clearly pointed out in the following verses. Robert, before you go any further, please could you define what the word or title or name Christ literally means? Well, it's actually more like a job description, who Jesus was. Let me just read you a couple of verses here from the New Testament. It says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here is a man in the New Testament who uses the term Christ. Right. Verses continue, and he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms, took Jesus up, and blessed God, and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared for the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And one other verse I'm going to just quote here is where it says, Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? So, Chris, in the New Testament, there's references to the term, the title, Christ. But if you look in your Old Testament, I only know one Old Testament that has the term Christ in it, and that's the Septuagint. Interesting. Now, where do these people get the word Christ? How do they know about it? It seems like what he said, do the rulers know, indeed, that this is the very Christ? It sounds to me like it was very, very common knowledge of the term Christ. But even if you look in the King James Version of the Bible, the Old Testament, you will not find the word Christ. And there's a reason for this. So Christ is also named in the Old Testament. Well, that's something I don't think many people know. I certainly didn't. I only associated Christ with the New Testament. 
Well, I can I can give you some examples here in, in just a minute, but maybe I better make something else clear here. Modern Hebrew that is used today bears absolutely no resemblance to the original Paleo-Hebrew. If Moses were alive today, he could not read or understand modern Hebrew. It was a made-up language that did not exist in the Old Testament. People today know what Paleo-Hebrew looks like, especially from the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the ancient manuscripts. Ancient Hebrew was a pictographic language. Some people believe it derived from Aramaic, but it's the language that Jesus and the disciples used. And if you look at many of the verses that are quoted in most modern English Bibles, from the Old Testament, you will see that they don't exactly match the Old Testament verses. You're right. It's nightlight. I'm going to get into something a little controversial right here. The early Christians were using the Septuagint, which was the common Greek language, to convert Jews to belief in Jesus. Now, around the time of 600, there was a subgroup of Jews called the Masoretes, which decided to retranslate the Koine Greek Septuagint into this new made-up language of Hebrew. They did this from around 600 to 1000 AD, and that is what almost all major English Bibles are translated from. They're translated from the Masoretic text and not the original Greek text. Oh, I see. I'll give you some information about that in just a minute. And that is the reason that uh, you will not find the word Christ in the Old Testament. Right. I'll give you some examples. And if you get yourself a Septuagint, which is really the Old Testament that many, many biblical scholars use in their research, uh, you will see these for yourself. I'm going to give you an example. 1 Samuel 2.10 in the King James Version. 1 Samuel 2.10 in the King James Version is the same as 1 Kings 2.10 in the Septuagint. And even if you look in your Bible at 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll see in underneath it, the book of 1 Samuel could also be called the first book of the Kings. Now, 1 Samuel 2.10 in the King James Version reads, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now the same verse in the Kone Greek, just to remind you again, this Kone Greek and some Aramaic is what Jesus and his disciples would have spoken at the time Jesus was on earth. The same verse, the Lord will weaken his adversary, the Lord is holy. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast in his strength, and let not the rich man boast in his wealth, but let him that boast boast in this, to understand and know the Lord and to execute judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. The Lord has gone up to the heavens and he thundered. He will judge the extremities of the earth and he gives strength to our kings. He will exalt the horn of his Christ. Wow. Actually, I don't know how much we want to get into it, but there are actually six verses in the Old Testament of the Septuagint that use the word Christ. Other words that are used in other English Bibles are the one used in the King James Bible, anointed, Messiah, messenger. There's all kinds of uh, different verses used. Robert, when you read both versions of that verse, the Septuagint version was twice as long as the same verse in the King James. Is there a lot more content in the Septuagint than in the King James? Well, it really depends on what verses you're talking about. Just to allay anyone's fears, because there are differences, it makes no difference in salvation. Yes, of course. The parts that were basically changed, and I'll get into more of this in a, in a little bit, were basically changed 
to enhance certain Jewish beliefs. I see. One of the well-known verses that was changed was Daniel 9.25, which, you know, has to deal with the covenant. And in the King James Version, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Now in the Septuagint, the same verse reads, And thou shalt know and understand that from the going forth of the command, for the answer, for the building of Jerusalem, until Christ the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and then the time shall return, and the street shall be built, and the wall, and the times shall be exhausted. They're similar, but again you can see in the King James Version it talks about unto Messiah the Prince, and in the Septuagint Version it comes directly until Christ the Prince. So that was taken out by the Masorites. Besides the different verses that have been changed, there are other areas that have been changed, and I'm going to let people draw their own conclusions about this because this could be quite controversial, but I'll give you another couple examples of differences where Christ appears in the Old Testament in the Septuagint version. If you'd like me to go ahead with that, Chris. Oh, yes, absolutely, Robert. This is so interesting and very important. Okay, well, we're going to go now to uh, 1 Samuel 2.35 in the King James Version, and 1 Kings 2.35 in the Septuagint. The King James Version reads, And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. The Septuagint reads, And I will raise up to myself a faithful priest, who shall do all that is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my Christ forever. So there's another example of that. Wow. And again, I'm going to go back. The people at the time of Jesus were very familiar with this term, Christ, because they were familiar with the Old Testament. Right. Psalm 2.2, King James Version. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Septuagint, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ. There it is again. A couple more here. Psalm 20, verse 6, King James. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Same verse in the Septuagint. Now I know that the Lord has saved his Christ. He shall hear him from his holy heaven. The salvation of his right hand is mighty. And one last verse. I believe we've gone over five of them. This will be the sixth one. This is Amos 4.13, King James Version. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Same verse in the Septuagint. For behold, I am he that strengthens the thunder and creates the wind and proclaims to men his Christ, forming the morning in the darkness and mounting on the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. So that's the six different verses. We've chose to use the King James Version, since many people are more familiar with that than many of the other English versions. And how the uh, Masoretes, between 600 and 1,000, changed the text and took the word Christ out and put in words like anointed, Messiah, Prince, and this type of thing. That's why people like Simeon and do the rulers know this is a very Christ, they were familiar with the term. Robert, who were the Masoretes? Tell us something about them. They were a subset of Jewish scholars and teachers, and from my understanding, similar to the uh, scribes and Pharisees. 
And I guess they were also Bible translators. Yeah, they were in charge of this translation. It took them apparently 400 years. And as I said, it was not translated into uh, Paleo-Hebrew. It was translated into a new language that was made up. Made up, gosh. Again, I'm going to say, nobody in the world knows what Paleo-Hebrew sounds like to this day. Really? They can read it, but no one has heard what I think the Book of Jubilees describes as the tongue of creation. Remember, God spoke everything into existence except for mankind, which he formed out of the dust of the earth. Shining Love's Light. You're listening to Nightlight. I'm going to go on to another one here, another topic. And this is not about Christ in the Old Testament. This is a, well, it could be quite controversial. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9 in the King James Version says when the Most High divided the nations, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bonds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is a lot of his inheritance. What this does, this puts Israel over the nations, and we're going to see what the Septuagint says about this. Past year or two, they had a big gathering of 70 nations in Israel to uh, celebrate this verse right here. Interesting. But Deuteronomy 32 8 and 9 in Septuagint, which says, When the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bonds of the nation according to the number of the angels of God. And his people, Jacob, became the portion of the land. Israel was the line of inheritance. So there's a big, big difference here. Now, remember at the time Deuteronomy was written, Israel was not even a nation yet. They were still wondering. They hadn't become a nation for years That's yet. That's right. But the big difference in uh, Deuteronomy and the King James Version says God set Israel over the nations. Deuteronomy and the Septuagint says God set the angels over the nations. Added information, these angels became worshipped as the gods, and they fell, they, they messed up, and they allowed the inhabitants of these different 70 nations to worship them, and they became the idols that these nations worshipped. Yes, and that is a very significant difference to change God put angels over the nations to God put Israel over the nations. Are they the same as the fallen angels that we read about? Well, that's not really clear. I mean, the fallen angels fell before the flood on Mount Hermon, and there were 200 of them. Whether or not they're the same angels that are talked about here, I don't know. I haven't been able to find any real solid evidence one way or the other on that. But in Psalm 82, God is addressing these angels that because of your failures, you're going to die like men. So if you're interested, read Psalm 82. It's a very interesting psalm where God is addressing what sounds like the angels that he put over the nations. Well, Psalm 82 is very short, so let me read it for our listeners. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will he judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked, Selah? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Nightlight. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Another couple of uh, incidents is 
2 Samuel 24, King James Version says, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Same verse in the Septuagint, 2 Kings 24, 1 says, And the Lord caused his anger to burn forth against Israel, and Satan stirred up David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Gosh, again, there's a big difference between the Lord moving David and Satan stirring up David. Another example concerns the book of Job, and this is Job 42.17 in the King James Version. This is how the whole book ends. So Job died being old and full of days. This is where the King James Version ends, but the Septuagint Version has additional information. And I'll read you that. And Job died, an old man and full of days, and it is written that he will rise again with those whom the Lord raises up. Now this is important. The man is described in the Syriac book as living in the land of Ossus on the borders of Edomio and Arabia, and his name before was Jobab, and having taken an Arabian wife, he begot a son whose name was Enon, and he himself was a son of his father Zer, one of the sons of Esau. He was a son of Esau, he was not the son of Jacob, and his mother Bosarah, so that he was the fifth from Abraham. And these were the kings who reigned in Edom, which country he also ruled over. First, Balak, the son of Bear, and the name of his city was Danaba. And after Balak, Jobab, who was called Job. And after him, Asam, who was governor of the country of Thaman. And after him, Adad, the son of Barad, who destroyed Madium in the plain of Moab. And the name of his city was Gethiam. And his friends who came to him were Eliaphaz, of the children of Esau, king of the Thaimites, Baldad, Sovereign and so far king of the Minions. What this does, and the reason this was expunged in my belief, I think most people think of Job as a good Hebrew who's going to go to heaven and he was greatly rewarded. But Job was not a Hebrew. He was not a son of Jacob. He was a son of Esau. I've even traced this back in the King James Version of the Old Testament and it proves that he was a son of Esau. So I believe this was expunged I don't know how to say this. <laughs> well, who did you think Job was a son of, uh, Chris? Well, to be honest, I never actually thought much about it. Well, I think most people would think, you know, he was a son of Jacob, the Hebrew. But he wasn't. He was the son of Esau, Jacob's brother, who sold his birthright. So just to be clear, the Masoretes between 600 to 1000 AD made some significant changes and omissions to their translations of the Bible known as the Masoretic Text. And subsequent translations, including the King James Bible, were based on the Masoretic Text and not the Septuagint. That is absolutely correct. Do you know why the King James and all the modern translations such as the NIV and so many others were based on the Masoretic text. Why didn't they translate from the Septuagint, especially if it was the Bible that Jesus and his disciples and the early church read? I think they just are unaware of it. I've been reading through a Bible, a Catholic Bible recently called the Knox Bible. And at the beginning of the Knox Bible, the translator, whose name is Knox, said he made references all the time to the Masoretic text. He does acknowledge the Septuagint text, but uh, it sounds like the Masoretic test had much more influence on him than the Septuagint. I also have a Knox Bible, Robert, and it's the only other translation that I read besides the King James. It's an amazing translation. But now I'm also definitely going to read the Septuagint now that you've turned me on to it. Inspiring you to dig deeper into God's Word. You're listening to Nightlight. Going on to something we touched on earlier about Paleo-Hebrew, I'm going to go into a, uh, 
one of the Apocrypha books, now Jubilees chapter 12, 27 and 28. And the Lord said to me, Open his mouth and his ears, that he may hear and speak with the language which has been revealed. For it had ceased from the mouths of all the children of men. And I opened his mouth and his lips, and I opened his ears, and I began to speak with him in Hebrew. Now again, this is the Paleo-Hebrew, in the tongue of creation. And he took the books of his father, and these were written in Hebrew, and he copied them, and he began to learn from them then on. And I made known to him everything he was incapable of understanding, and he studied them the six months of the rainy season. So it does talk about the Paleo-Hebrew being the tongue of creation. Wow. As I've already said, nobody that I am able to understand in the world knows what Paleo-Hebrew sounds like. They can read it, but no one knows what it sounds like. Psalm 33, 9 says, For he spoke, and they were made. He commanded, and they were created. Now, the main changes between the Septuagint and most other English Bibles, I'm going to just say right here, involves the Jewish people. That makes sense. Uh, there are other changes as well, but I want to do something to make sure you don't just throw your English Bible out. I want to read Psalm 23, which most of you are very familiar with. From the Septuagint, you can see how closely it is in regard to the King James Version. The Lord tends me as a shepherd, and I shall want nothing. In a place of green grass, there he has made me dwell. He has nourished me by the water of rest. He has restored my soul. He has guided me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, even if I walk in the midst of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid of evils, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, these have comforted me. Thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of them that afflict me. Thou hast thoroughly anointed my head with oil, and thy cup cheers me like the best wine. Thy mercy also shall follow me all the days of my life, my dwelling shall be in the house of the Lord for a very long time. Beautiful. So you can see it's very, very similar, as is most of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to the uh, King James Version of the Bible. And as I say, the main differences that have been changed concern the nation of Israel and the Jews themselves. Is there much extra content in the Septuagint than we read in the King James? Oh, yes, and especially in the uh, many of the Apocrypha books, like, First Ezra's, Second Ezra's, uh, and especially the books of Jasher and Jubilees, you'll find material that in no way contradicts what's in the uh, King James Version, but embellishes it and gives additional information that is many times very uh, enlightening and gives a greater understanding to the, uh, the text of the King James Version. But is that the same in the Septuagint, or is it mainly just a different translation of the same scriptures? Well, both. It's a different translation, but it also holds, which Eastern Orthodox Bibles hold, they held the 14 books that were taken out of the King James Version of the Bible, I believe somewhere around the 1600s, like the book of uh, Tobit. In the King James Version of the Bible, the book of Daniel has 12 chapters, and I believe in the Septuagint there's 14 chapters, and in the Septuagint there's two extra psalms up to 152. So there is material in the Septuagint that you will not find in the, uh, in the King James Version. Well, thank you, Robert. This has been very informative, as I really knew nothing about the Septuagint, and now I feel somewhat enlightened, and I'm also looking forward to reading and studying it. I'm still solidly a King James man, and even though I'm aware, and now even more so, that there are a number of mistranslations, still I feel that there's a 
special anointing on the King James Bible. And I can't imagine using any other Bible for my deep devotional times with God. And there's just something about the poetry and the flowing language of the King James that I personally don't find in other Bibles. But I am looking forward now to reading and studying the Septuagint and comparing key scriptures to the same scriptures in the King James. Well, as far as the King James Version goes, uh, I solely use the King James Version for the New Testament. And I use uh, both the King James Version and the Septuagint for the Old Testament. Well, you know, it's it's a study Bible. Robert, for those of us who are now eager to read the Septuagint, can we get a copy online? And are there different translations from the original Greek? And if so, which one would you recommend? Well, you can actually, you can download the Septuagint online and the Book of Jasher, the Book of Jubilees, and the Book of Enoch. A version of the Septuagint I use was translated in 1851 by a man named Sir Lancelot C.L. Brenton. And that seems to be the version that most Bible researchers prefer. In closing, to sum up, Robert, what would you say is the main reasons why we should take an interest in the Septuagint? We should take an interest in the Septuagint because as we started out, you can see the foundation of the word Christ, which is very, very important. In my opinion, and the opinion of many others, to sum it up, it's more accurate and has additional information and broaches the subjects that most English Bibles shy away from or do not report at all. And thank you so much, Robert Mandelbaum. Well, that was just a brief insight into the Septuagint. And if you'd like to add more information, you're welcome to add it in the comments below. Until next time, this is Chris Glynn signing off. And I look forward to being back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. God bless.